this is going to continue to get more and more pressure. And those dud performances from Texas have to go away because they can do it this year. They are good enough to win the national championship. They proved it on Saturday. Now it's about being mature enough to handle all the positive vibes that will come out of this performance. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. It is Monday, September 11th. We hope all of you are having a terrific start to the week. What a week it was in college football. I'm Greg McElroy. Help break it down. Help make sense of it. Tell you why some teams are not dead. Even though everyone wants you to think they are, there's a lot of teams that are not. I'm going to tell you why there are a couple teams that might be national championship contenders. One wears burnt orange. One has golden helmets. Maybe two have golden helmets, but they do occasionally wear white helmets as they proved in week number one. It's a loaded week two that we need to break down. 10 takeaways. We'll do an AP poll reaction. A lot of things that we need to look at and break down from a bunch of different angles. I continue to ask all of you to like, to rate, and subscribe to our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up button, subscribe to the ESPN YouTube channel. We'll continue to provide top quality college football content each and every week. So without really wasting any more time, let's get into a short little reaction to what we've seen from the AP before we dive into the 10 things we learned. Well, the second edition of the AP poll is out and there are a few takeaways, but really, to be honest with you, it's not crazy. We're going to hit some of my thoughts naturally in just a moment when we get through the 10 things that we really learned to break down some of the matchups from this past weekend. Upon further review, Looking at some of the numbers, I think you're going to be fascinated with some of the stuff that we came up with. A few things that I felt like the AP poll got right. The parody in college football is very obvious right now. You have five different conferences that are represented in the top five. That's the first time since early 2017. Of course, Georgia SEC, Michigan, obviously, Big 10, Florida State ACC, Texas Big 12, and then USC in the Pac-12. So Ohio State, by the way, continuing to slip. Don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but then again, I, I kind of understand given just how some of the other teams have performed. I mean, Florida State, they've earned their way in the top five. Texas, they've earned their way in the top five. And SC, by the way, I think they've looked pretty dang good here in the first couple of weeks, albeit against lower level competition. Team that I thought might be just a little bit too high right now, that would be Tennessee. Tennessee's in at number 11. Uh, based on what I've seen from Tennessee up to this point, Offense, a little bit of a work in progress. We'll talk about them more here in just a little bit. But what made Tennessee a very difficult team to play last year, they haven't really shown me that just yet. Improvements defensively, but Tennessee's bread and butter has been the big game ability and the big playability of the offense. And that has been really missing in action through the first couple of weeks. But weird game, didn't run through the tee. Maybe there are some superstitious elements to it. So... That's worth noting. The team that I thought was maybe just a little bit too low, and I think this was just maybe a slight overreaction, is North Carolina. And we'll talk about them a little bit more too. They dropped four spots in the poll this week because they played Appalachian State, a team that has always played North Carolina really, really well. They didn't play great against Appalachian State. And as a result, the voters clearly took notice and dropped them down four spots. Team that I thought should be in the top 10 or top, top 10, top 25 is Kansas. Now, Kansas, as far as a traditional powerhouse is concerned, not really a team that's going to generate a lot of buzz. But if you watched their performance against Illinois on Friday night, 
There were aspects of it that I didn't love, but Jalen Daniels is unbelievable. I mean, he's throwing back shoulder passes. Illinois has got things pretty bottled up and he runs and creates and extends. And he's, he looked more accurate in the game on Friday. And remember, this is his first action of the season. He looked more accurate in this game on Friday. I mean, I'm talking high-level accuracy, right-handed quarterback to his left, multiple back shoulder touchdowns. I am very intrigued by what I've seen from Kansas so far. I'm not saying they win the Big 12 or anything like that, but they would be a team that I wouldn't want to play, and I would have them as of right now in my top 25. Ten things I've learned this weekend, several of which are matchup-related elements, but... I thought these were probably the biggest takeaways from what was week two of the college football season. Number one, and I, I think collectively everyone's starting to get on board with this. The University of Texas is not just a playoff contender. They're not just the Big 12 favorite. This is a legitimate national championship contender. And those that have said, well, Greg, you're rushing to judge. Greg, you're you're putting the cart before the horse. This is a total overreaction. I totally acknowledge that very, very much. But when you think about where Texas has been, this program was not as bad as many have pointed to in the last couple of years. They've played six top 10 opponents over the last four seasons. Every single game had been decided by one score or less. They only won one of them. And that was against what we found out was a very average Oklahoma State team back in 2020. But they just handed Nick Saban's first double-digit home loss as a college football head coach since 2003. Uh, that was when Florida beat LSU back in the early 2000s. They won that game 19-7. So it's been 20 years since we've seen Nick Saban and their team look the way they did this past weekend. And it wasn't one of those situations where it was a little bit fluky. We'll talk about Alabama in a minute. But this had the makings of a real contender, okay? To win a national championship, I think you have to have really good quarterback play. I'm not sure I'm necessarily breaking any news there with a lot of people that have followed our show. Quinn Ewers has played remarkably well at times in his college career. Four examples in which he's just looked like, at times, the best player on the field. That was Alabama in 2023, Alabama in 2022, Oklahoma in 2022, and then against Kansas State last year. Obviously, Texas has won three of the four. The one they didn't was when Quinn Ewers actually got hurt in the game against Alabama last year. But if you look at just how he's played and how we've talked all last week, can Quinn Ewers hit deep balls down the field? Because that's how you beat Alabama. And that's how you beat top tier defenses. Well, in the three games against both Alabama and Oklahoma dating back to last year, he's completed seven of 12 throws that have traveled 20 or more yards downfield against everybody else that he's faced. He's completed just five of 43 of those throws. When he's hitting those deep balls, this offense is almost impossible to defend. But I think more than anything, we've talked about the frontline talent for Texas. We've said that this roster is coiled and ready to spring. We know they have tremendous weapons. We know they have outstanding talent, albeit relatively inexperienced talent at running back. Had maybe a couple questions, especially after the game against Rice along the offensive line. They proved to be a big difference maker in the game. I thought they did a tremendous job. 
handling what is a pretty disruptive Alabama defensive front. But my goodness, man, I think the biggest thing that I learned about Texas is they get up 13-3. We've seen that from Steve Sarkeesian coach teams, right? We've seen Texas with a big lead in the first half against quality competition, and then boom, the momentum flips, and the next thing you know, Texas goes into their shell. We've seen that happen multiple times in Steve Sarkeesian's tenure. He's a tremendous offensive mind, does a great job in game planning. But when you think about what transpired in this game this past weekend, they're up 13-3. Bama then scores 13 consecutive points. Jalen hits that, Jalen Milrow hits that big play to Jermaine Burton. And it felt like a turning point, like, oh, here we go again. Well, that lasted for about five minutes. And then Texas immediately answers. Quinn Ewers hits JT Sanders, who, by the way, I apologize for those that watched the breakdown last week. I have a million names in my head, and I accidentally called JT Sanders LT Overton. He's played for AM. Like, I don't know how that happened, but I apologize. <laughs> so JT Sanders, I'll never, ever, ever mess up his name again. But for those that caught that, I appreciate you keeping me in check. Just too many names swirling there in week number two of the college football season. But Quinn hits that 50-yard pass to JT. Then he hits A.D. Mitchell. And then you get the Jaron Thompson interception. Jonathan Brooks, of course, scores. And within the span of about five snaps, you go from down three to up 11. And that's the makings, I think, of a big-time college football team. Well, Bama answered. That's what Bama does. They're not going to go quietly into the night. They're going to answer. They go right down the field, score a touchdown. Next thing you know, they're back within three. All of a sudden, the comeback is on, right? And then Jordan Whittington takes that pass for the, for the nice gain uh, on, on second and long, where it felt like things were starting to come apart. And then Ewers obviously hit Mitchell for the big touchdown to put the thing on ice. Bama then goes three and out. And then you think about what Texas was able to do pounding the football, taking the final seven minutes off the clock and kneeling on it to close the game. It was as mentally tough a performance I've seen from Texas in over a decade. And that's on the road in a remarkably hostile environment against a very proud football team that has traditionally dominated the fourth quarter. Guess who dominated the fourth quarter this past weekend? That was Texas. 21 points scored in the fourth quarter. That's the most Alabama's ever given up under Nick Saban. And then in the fourth quarter, Quinn Ewers was six of seven for 135 and a couple touchdowns. So here's the thing for Texas to keep moving forward. They showed the mental fortitude. They showed the top end playmaking ability, both offensively and defensively. They had some guys on defense that really emerged, man. That front seven defensively, I mean, 93 to Vondre Sweat. Uh, you know, the freshman, you know, number zero, 40. I mean, Jalen, Jalen's obviously been amazing there at the second level that might linebacker for a while. But now when you win, and I thought this was beautifully stated, and I'll credit Bill Connolly because I thought he had a tremendous quote as it relates to the Longhorns quote in college football, your reward for winning big games is playing more and more big games until all of them by definition are huge. Keep bringing it Longhorns in 2021. You think about how they played in the past against Oklahoma, uh, against how they've played against Baylor, uh, against how they you know, lost to Iowa State, uh, Kansas. This is going to continue to get more and more pressure. 
And those dud performances from Texas have to go away because they can do it this year. They are good enough to win the national championship. They proved it on Saturday. Now it's about being mature enough to handle all the positive vibes that'll come out of this performance and continuing to prepare and play the way you're capable of playing from this point forward. Hats off and kudos to the Texas Longhorns. Let's get to number two. Alabama does feel vulnerable, okay? But I want to emphasize this, and this is me not being, you know, I'm going to find silver linings most of the time for everyone we talk about. I think you guys know know me in that way. I don't necessarily declare teams dead under any circumstances. But here's what I think is a real concern for Alabama. The areas for Alabama that were supposed to be strengths coming into the year did not play like strengths this past weekend. The offensive line. Do you realize that Jalen Milrow was pressured on half of his dropbacks? Half. 19 of his 39 dropbacks, there was some form of pressure coming in his direction. They also registered five sacks. Now, that's a ton of credit to Texas and their front seven personnel, who I think are very underrated and very very underappreciated. But the offensive line is the heart and soul of Alabama. They have three guys that are over 350 pounds. And when they can't maul you, and through two weeks, they have not been able to maul the opposing defensive line. That's not just against Texas. That's against Middle Tennessee as well. When your strength is not playing like a strength, that's going to make everybody else around you play a little bit concerned and maybe press and maybe do a few too many things. So that group collectively has to play better. And I'm not talking by just a little bit. I'm talking by a lot bit. The offensive line has to take a significant step forward. A lot of people have looked at the quarterback play by Jalen Milrow. I'm going to go and tell you this. You can't play quarterback by yourself. You can't. Offensive line wasn't great. Separation wasn't great. I thought the Texas secondary did a pretty good job outside of a play or two here or there. I thought the front seven, like I've talked about, really was disruptive. But I think about Jalen Milrow, and there were two examples, obviously the two interceptions that just can't happen. Jalen Milrow is a first-year starting quarterback. First-year starting quarterback is going to make mistakes. It happens to everybody. It doesn't matter how good you are. There's going to be a couple ups and downs with your performance. There's going to be moments in which you're seeing ghosts and maybe you don't see the field great from the passing posture, but he's got to be able to understand coverage. The first interception to the left, you got to understand where there's two high safeties. There's a corner squatted to the outside. They're running cover two. He's responsible for the flat. The guy that he threw it to, to the left-hand side, cannot even be part of the progression. That's just understanding defensive structure. And then later, the interception, staring it down completely. That's a one receiver route. That's one guy. So you're looking in that direction. All you have to do, the corner can't cover that route. It's too deep. If you throw it on time, it's an uncoverable route. The only thing you have to do is negotiate and manipulate the defender that could jump in front of it. Jalen didn't. He stared at the receiver. And as a result, Thompson made the interception. That's all part of the process of learning. And I think that Jalen Milrow also needs to do a better job of attacking the line of scrimmage as opposed to trying to run around the defense. Because running around the defense is a losing proposition against really high-end athletic defenses. He's, at times, the best athlete on the field. He has to go vertical. He has to attack vertical. And if he does, I think he'll be okay. Defensively, Alabama's got to quit giving up big plays, but they also got put in some really difficult matchups. You get great wide receivers against safeties. That's 
strike up the fight song. If I'm an offense, I remember I played against Cam Chancellor at Virginia Tech. It was my first college start. Cam Chancellor went on to play for the Seattle Seahawks and had an amazing NFL career. He's a remarkably talented player. But our entire game plan against Virginia Tech back in 2009 was how do we get number 17, Cam Chancellor? How do we get him in one-on-one? Because if we get him in one-on-one with one of our wide receivers, we will bury them. And sure enough, we did. We got Marquise Mays over the top, right behind Cam Chancellor. And it was a a touchdown. I think he got tackled on the one or whatever. So safeties do not belong on islands against wide receivers. It's an impossible, impossible task. So they have to figure out ways of doing that. And I didn't think the secondary collectively played very well. And then finally for Alabama, they have to clean up the the penalties. This is an offense in particular that cannot live in third and seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, third and long, obvious passing situations. That's not where they want to live. They got to be more efficient on first and second down. And if they can do that, they won't put their quarterback in harm's way. I'm not going to call for a quarterback change. I don't know what Buckner could do. I don't know what Ty Simpson could do. I don't know what Dylan Lonergan can do as a true freshman. I don't know those things. All I know is that they need to play better around Milrow. And then at the same time, Milrow needs to play a little bit better as well. Alabama can still get things righted. They can still figure things out, but they have a long way to go. And it really starts with making sure that the strengths of their team, the secondary and their offensive line play at a much higher level than what we saw this past weekend against the Texas Longhorns. Takeaway number three. Is Miami back? I'm, I'm, I know that we said this about Texas. It's weird that both Texas and Miami all in one weekend are collectively back. But are they? Seriously. And I, I want to give a tremendous credit to Mario Cristobal. Because I, I think so far, and it's early, it's early. We're two weeks into the season. So far... He's made the best coordinator hires of the offseason. Said that he might in the offseason. Those are two guys I'm very, very interested in seeing. But so far, what I've seen from Shannon Dawson offensively, he's empowered Tyler Van Dyke to have some autonomy at the line of scrimmage, taking what he deems necessary, making sure that they're patient. If they're playing soft coverage like Miami, Ohio was doing, boom, we'll just dink and dunk you to death right down the field. If you're playing against AM and they're maybe the tiniest bit more aggressive, boom, we'll take our shots. And I'm going to find space for my wide receivers so that they can create opportunities after the catch. How about how often they were able to get their playmakers in space? Let's just look at the numbers. Xavier Restrepo, 92 yards after the catch. 92, that's 15 and a half yards after the catch per reception. Jacoby George, 75 yards after the catch. That's 15 yards after the catch per reception. Colby Young, 48 yards after the catch. He only had the one, so 48 yards per reception. They're finding space for their playmakers, and that's what happens when you have an offense like this that forces the defense to play on islands and spreads you out, not just horizontally, but they can also spread you out vertically as well. I think it was also very impressive, too, because if you think about Miami's performance in this game, it was hardly a flawless performance. I mean, far from it, to be honest with you. They had two massive miscues on special teams, including the muffed punt, which obviously led to points, including the blocked punt, which obviously led to points. And to make things even more difficult, they had 10 flags for 115 yards, which extended multiple AM drives. And they also didn't run the ball very well. 
And they also didn't generate any sacks, even though they generated an awful lot of pressure. So it was hardly a flawless performance, and yet they still win running away. They did have, they have the kick return, which is massive there in the second half. As far as what we've seen from Lance Gendry defensively, I, I already said I think Shan Dawson, one of the best hires in the country, the only one that might possibly supersede Shannon Dawson's hire up to this point is what we've seen from Lance Gidry. They realized that they were blitzing Connor Wigman nearly 60% of his dropbacks and was under duress on pretty much all of them. I mean, Connor Wigman, if there's one thing I learned, that dude is tough as nails, tough as nails. And what I noticed too, is that they had such a good feel for Texas A&M's protection. And this is on the coach. This is on the coach. They understood Texas A&M's protections and they were able to consistently overload the protections. How many free runners did Miami get? And how many free hits did they get on Connor Wigman because they were overloading the protection? They also, I think, did a really good job defensively keeping things in front of them. So they're heating up the quarterback, forcing the ball out of his hands, and then they were rallying up to make the play. And if you look at Miami down the stretch, and I know it's a little early, but based on what we've seen now through two weeks, and I thought last week's game was really a fantastic performance. They're projected to be the favorites in every game but one. Every game but one. That trip to Tallahassee on November 11th, yes, they'll be a dog, but it's looking highly likely that Miami will bounce back significantly after what was a very disappointing 5-7 and seven 2022 campaign. At number four, we have to ask the deal about Texas A&M. What's going on? Another dismal performance. Another disappointing loss. Everyone's starting to... The boo birds are out in College Station, understandably so. I think some of their issues are correctable. And like I said, I think they played a moment ago. I think they played against a really good Miami football team. Here's how they can still become a factor in the SEC. Number one. They have to figure out a way to create more explosiveness in the run game. They really didn't get many opportunities with talented running backs getting to the second level, making guys miss, and creating explosives in the run game. Number two, they've had a couple of big turnovers, right? A couple of really big turnovers. You can't go on the road and turn it over and expect to win the game. Turnovers are the most important determining factor in whether or not you win ball games. And they obviously struggle with that. The Amari Daniels fumble at the end of the third quarter was absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. It obviously turned into a touchdown for the Hurricanes. And then they had the wide receiver slip on the middle of the field. Wigman threw a nice ball on time. It's just unlucky, to be honest with you. So that's one that can be cleaned up. But at the same time, you just can't turn the football over because Miami was feasting in the secondary. I think they did a really good job. They also have to figure out a way to create a real pass rush. For whatever reason, when they were coming after the quarterback, they were like worried about Tyler Van Dyke taking off and just crushing them with their legs. Man, go after that guy. They pressured him only on 21% of his throws. And when you have a guy that's going to play in the NFL at quarterback, you have to be able to make him feel uncomfortable. And they really weren't at any point able to do that. And then the secondary, perhaps the most disappointing part of what we saw from Texas A&M this past weekend, they, they blew coverages. They seemed to I mean, miss a million tackles. My goodness. They had on the perimeter, and we talked a little bit, I think they're good at safety, but the corners are suspect and the corners coming into this game were a big question mark. Their corners surrendered 10 catches on 13 targets for 210 yards and four touchdowns. All right. 
They also, the corners, gave up 130 yards after the catch. But the safeties were not immune to the issues either. The safeties gave up five catches on seven targets, 117 yards and 67 yards after the catch on pick plays and crossing routes, things that work in the middle of the field. So they have to do a better job in the back end, eliminating some of the space that the receivers were able to consistently create. And then I've already kind of alluded to it. Man, they have to tackle better because if they're not tackling better, it could be a long year there in the back end against some of the receivers that they will play in their conference schedule. Let's go to number five. My Badgers, I'm going to say my Badgers because I've been riding the Wisconsin bandwagon all off season. Well, they're very much a work in progress. They really are. Think about Washington State last year, their game. They had 11 penalties, two fourth quarter turnovers. It was a debacle. So it was easy to point to, hey, you know, Wisconsin kind of let Washington State off the hook. A lot of people have already been pointing to officiating. I don't want to hear about officiating. Okay, should they have taken a look at the possible safety? You know, the Malusi fumble, whatever. I don't like to talk about officiating. Not on this show. I'm never going to. Here are the issues, I think, with Wisconsin up to this point, and how do they get it figured out? One, there were a bunch of different situations this past weekend where Wisconsin did not adequately get lined up defensively in the first half, which led to a bunch of of chunk plays for Washington State. They got to do a better job of lining up. This is not a team in Wisconsin that can afford to turn the ball over multiple times and still live to tell the tale. And while the passing game last week certainly was very much a work in progress, I thought against Buffalo, it wasn't great. Mordecai missed some throws, but guess what? The run game was able to bail them out. You think about Braylon Allen, think about what Ches Malusi was able to do last week. They were off the charts good. And we're like, all right, well, hey, you know, if the, if the passing game's not really going, then guess what? They'll still be able to carve you up in the run game. Well, Jake Dickert clearly knew that. The head coach of Washington State said, we are going to do whatever we have to do to make sure that these running backs don't kill us. And my goodness, did they ever. They did an amazing job, amazing job of being able to really contain the run game for Wisconsin and really put a lot of the pressure on the passing attack, which clearly at this point is not quite where it needs to be. The biggest concern I think for Wisconsin was really defensively. It kind of took me back to watching Wisconsin against Ohio State last year. Felt like tempo really hurt them. Uh, they, they had a difficult time with substitutions. They even got caught at one point with too many players on the field defensively. Uh, they gave up a bunch of chunk plays to the air in the first couple quarters, which put Wisconsin in a pretty significant hole that they just weren't really able to overcome. It's also a Wisconsin team that through two games, no takeaways, has yet to force a turnover. And that's obviously something that dating all the way back to Dave Aranda's time in 2013, that's been a real, real positive. And then... First and second down efficiency, not great. They're not able to pin their ears back. There's just a certain spark missing when you look at Wisconsin. Here's the good news. Second half, they played much, much better. It seemed like first half, they kind of played things close to the vest, couldn't really do a whole lot. Phil Longo, the offensive coordinator, really kind of let things go in the second half, and they had a lot more success. They clearly closed the gap, but they were held to you know 90 yards on 29 carries. I mean, that is, they're going to have to take the pressure off the passing game if the passing game's not yet a well-oiled machine, and they weren't really able to do that. So uh, I think when you look at Wisconsin, there's a lot that can be cleaned up, and I think they can actually do so pretty quickly. But 
my goodness, you got to be able to find ways to run the football. And you have to be a whole heck of a lot better in the first two quarters defensively because they did not look at all like the Wisconsin defense there in the first 30 minutes that we've seen traditionally, gosh, for the last two decades, however long it's been. Number six, Notre Dame is the real deal. I saw it with my own two eyes. I was there in Raleigh. I have so much respect for NC State defense. I think you guys listening to me on this show for years or a year and change. (laughs) I love the way NC State is aggressive and they blitz and they run to the football and they really do a good job. And they had not, prior to Saturday's performance, allowed 30 points or they had not allowed over 30 points. They did give up 30 to Clemson in 17 ball games. That was the longest streak in college football until Sam Hartman came to town. And guess what? The last guy to lead an offense to more than 30 points against NC State was Sam Hartman. It was just at a different school. I thought Sam Hartman did an amazing job weathering the storm early. No pun intended because of the weather delay, but he really did a good job of weathering the storm. He got hit early. I mean, he had a fumble, got hit hard. They were bringing pressure. Pocket was collapsing and couldn't really do a whole lot. But after the break, they were able to take a step back, collectively figure out some of the ways that they were going to attack the aggressiveness of NC State's defense, and they did a really nice job. Tobias Merriweather gets involved. Chris Tyree taking advantage of a broken play down the right sideline. I think those two guys need to continue to grow because they have a lot of juice, and I think that they are probably in the future going to be vital against teams with better collective team speed. The other guy that I thought emerged, which was very exciting, was Holden Stays. Trying to figure out, okay, how do you replace Michael Mayer? Michael Mayer, obviously, an all-time great, well-rounded tight end. By the way, I saw Tyler Eifert in the airport flying back, and he only wanted to talk about Holden Stays. Uh, so <laughs> he, clearly, a former great Notre Dame tight end, who I talked to for a while, wanted to talk about what he saw from his Irish. Great dude, by the way. Love you, Tyler Eifert. Great guy. Uh, anyways, Holden Stays, he might not be the well-rounded player that Michael Mayer was, But that guy can run. Saw it a little bit against Tennessee State on some shallow cross routes. Now you're seeing him in the flat. You're seeing him down the field. You're seeing him after the catch. He's going to be a significant issue. The other massive takeaway that I had for Notre Dame, I think the pass rush is still a bit of a work in progress. They um, weren't really able to apply the same type of pressure. They did get the Donovan Heinish sack late in the game, but there wasn't a lot that they could do as far as applying a ton of pressure to Brennan Armstrong. I thought they did a good job keeping him contained. Now that the receivers for NC State could never really create separation, man. That secondary, and we're going to find out a couple weeks from now against Ohio State just how good that secondary is, but they're among the best I've seen in college football up to this point. It's early, but I wanted to see how... Obviously, against Tennessee State, Navy locked down great in the back end, Well, they took a step collectively this past weekend. Even some of the completions were in tight coverage. So very impressed with what I've seen from Benjamin Morrison. Really impressed with what I saw from Jaden Mickey. Uh, Xavier Watts there in the back end played one of the best games of his career. Boykin looked really good. They are really good in the back end. And if they can continue to improve their pass rush, we know they're good at the second level with their linebackers. They can continue to improve their pass rush with their front four, which is a question mark, I think, still at this point they're going to be very difficult to move the ball consistently against. And then finally, they got to clean up the penalties. This is a running theme right now, by the way. Think about Notre Dame competing 10 
penalties on the road. They'd done a really good job the first two weeks. It had been clean. Ten penalties on the road, several of which resulted in first downs for NC State, including jumping off sides. Jack Kaiser, one of their best players, jumping off sides in a punt situation to give NC State new life, which ultimately led to points. You had an unsportsmanlike call on Morrison, one of your best players. You got to clean up the penalties, but that's not something I'm super worried about because that has not traditionally been a massive problem for Notre Dame with some of the players and the coaching that they're going to receive from Marcus Freeman. Number seven, the best offense in the Big Ten might reside in Happy Valley. Now, part of it, we got, you know, everyone's kind of, they haven't really, no one's really been tested and all these other things, but let's just think about where both Michigan and Ohio State are for the moment in games against relative cupcakes. Uh, East Carolina, UNLV for Michigan, Indiana, Youngstown State for Ohio State. They've really, on average, those four games, Ohio State and Michigan have outscored their opponent 31 to 5. So neither has won a game by fewer than 20 points, but they haven't really looked offensively like they're totally in sync just yet. Now, I say that with a slight grain because I think JJ McCarthy has looked very accurate. And he's throwing darts right now. So really optimistic still about what they ultimately can be. But based on what I've seen up to this point, man, it's pretty shocking some of the numbers that have come out. Michigan offense ranks 76th, 76th in a rushing success rate. That's not something that is real telling. It's not good. We're talking about Michigan. They want to run the football. That's who they are. McCarthy's great. Love them. Think the receiver's good. Think the tight ends are good. They got to run the football and they have not fared great up to this point, just 76 in rushing success rate. And then how about third down for Ohio state third down? They are seven of 23 in third down so far this year, Ohio state that's 114th in college football. So that leads me to Penn state who as a quarterback in drew Aller that has been playing really high level football. Now, He's completing 78% of his passes with four touchdowns, no interceptions, and just one sack. A little worried about, you know, would he be able to move? Would he be able to negotiate a pass rush? They haven't really seen one yet, but it's still, to this point, his accuracy has been tremendous in these first couple outings. Uh, At one point in the first half this past week, Drew Aller had targeted eight different receivers a total of 14 times and had completed 13 of those 14. Now, I think in an effort to prove that he wasn't a robot... He had three straight incompletions after that and then finished the game by going eight straight, eight for eight to finish up 22 of 26 for 204, a touchdown passing, a touchdown rushing, and no interceptions. Catron Allen, Nicholas Singleton, of course, in the preseason, generating a lot of the buzz. But Catron Allen is really the more physical guy and might actually be very beneficial to them down the road. You have the thunder and the lightning. Well, Catron Allen's got plenty of lightning as well. But he's the thumper, man. He's going to finish runs. And he got the start this past week. You kind of listened to James Franklin all offseason. Like, hey, man, don't forget about Catron Allen. Don't forget about Catron Allen. Well, 19 carries, 103 yards, and looked really physical, obviously, in the process. Singleton, not quite as significant uh, of a contribution as far as yardage, but, of course, made the most of his carries. And then the other thing, too, the weapons. We knew Keandre Lambert-Smith would be in a good position to take the next step as the number one. But now with Tyler Warren's emergence, 
I mean, we're talking about a guy that was targeted six times, uh, 12 targets between the two of them. They made 12 catches for 111 yards and a touchdown. Obviously, Warren had the touchdown. So, uh, And also, Keandre Lambert-Smith, five of his catches went for first down. So I'm really optimistic with what I've seen offensively from Penn State. And right now, through the first few weeks of the season, that might be the most difficult offense to defend in the entire Big Ten, which is not something I anticipated coming into the season. At number eight... Here's where Colorado's ceiling was before the season. Here's where it was after week one. Here's where it is after week two. The bar for what I'm now expecting for Colorado is skyrocketing. And I'm a see it to believe it guy. Always have been. You will absolutely get credit when it's earned, shown, deserved, etc. But this is a stingy defense that they played this past weekend. And in the first half, it wasn't great, right? I'm talking about a group that had 33 snaps offensively in the first half, just 136 yards, trying to figure out, okay, how things are going to work out here. How are they going to do? How are they going to handle it? And then boom, because the offense wasn't really playing great, the defense was off the charts good. Now, they were aided some by some self-inflicted mistakes, a million of them, from Nebraska. But that's not really, I think, an indictment on Colorado. They played well. I am so much more optimistic with what I've seen from them after the Nebraska game than even the TCU game. And partly because there was a moment there in the second half, hey, it's 13-7. Jeff Sims just had the, the QB draw on the, on the second and long for the touchdown. Okay, things maybe starting to flip a little bit. Maybe Nebraska's starting to find something. And then boom, 23-0 run to answer that immediate test. And then so much about what they're doing, we're going to focus on the weapons, right? We're going to talk about the weapons. And you think about just how explosive this group is. I mean, they are so difficult to defend because of how explosive they are. Man, yards after catch in college football are such an important statistic because it's what your receivers do with the ball in their hands and what they do as far as creating enough separation to create yards after catch. And I think Sean Lewis, their offensive coordinator, has done a really good job of scheming up some of these opponents these first couple of weeks. They have 438 yards after catch this year. That's the second most in college football. Second most in college football. The only team that has more is USC, who's played three games. Colorado's played two. I was really intrigued coming into this past game, how would the offensive line fare? Because I watched the TCU game, and I saw TCU employ a three-man pass rush with not great defensive line personnel. I watched Nebraska against Minnesota, and I looked at, hey, that's a big, strong outfit defensively. They're strong. They're physical. They can probably push the pocket. And I did think coming into the game that they could possibly apply some pressure. They couldn't. Well, they did, but it didn't matter. Because when you think about how Shador Sanders played, and Shador Sanders, they've, they've given up 11 sacks so far. So the offensive line still collectively a little bit of a work in progress. But guess what? Everybody's a work in progress along the offensive line. I talked earlier in the show about Alabama. That strength of their team is their offensive line. They've given up a bunch of sacks, a bunch of pressures. Give up five against Texas just this past week. So yeah, they've given up 11 sacks this year. That's the second most in college football among power five quarterbacks. Uh, but Shador Sanders has been so good when facing pressure. 
He has 24 completions when being pressured this season. That is 10 more than any other quarterback in the FBS. That is absurd. And what I've most, probably most impressed with is that he, he escapes. He keeps his eyes downfield. The throw that he made where he's rolling to his left, turns, sets his feet, and he's, I'm talking fastball, four-seam fastball, boom, right between defenders on the scramble drill to his left, which for a right-handed quarterback is a difficult throw to make, especially when you're flipping your hips and trying to drive the football. Man, that ball had a lot of pace, a lot of zip, and you know where it was? Boom, right in the chest of the intended wide receiver. He also, too, one of his best plays of the afternoon, escapes to his right. He sees Travis Hunter. As a quarterback, you got to know your personnel, right? You got to know what they can do. You got to know, hey, even when he's covered, he's still open. And there's not a lot of guys that get billing like that, but I can promise you Travis Hunter is one of them. Well, he sees that a defender's back is to him. Travis Hunter's in a one-on-one situation. He heaves it downfield, knows that the defender won't be able to locate the football based on where he was from a positioning standpoint. Travis Hunter reels it in and creates a big play. I am so incredibly impressed with what I've seen from Shador Sanders through two weeks. So incredibly impressed. But just notice, it's, it's not just the yards, stats, numbers. When you watch him, look at the ball placement. The ball placement is what's most impressive because receivers, guess what? They can create yards after catch because the ball placement allows them to. He's putting it right where it needs to be. And it's not like he's with great pocket integrity either. He's having to do some things on his own and improvise. What I expected from him he is a hundred times better. So much respect for Colorado. Obviously, they'll probably get through this game this week against Colorado State, and then that'll set up an incredible two-game stretch against both Oregon and against USC. Colorado is just so impressive. One of the best stories I've ever covered here in the sport. Credit to Dion. Credit to the Buffs. Credit to the fan base, which, by the way, was so engaged in the game this past weekend. It was really awesome to watch that, and I think it will continue. Let's go to number nine. SEC has some problems, folks. They have some problems. And it's easy to rush to judge. And we'll try the best we can to just make sure we don't rush to judge too much. But when we think about some of the losses that the league has already experienced, Alabama to Texas, Texas A&M to Miami, LSU to Florida State, not super competitive in the second half of that football game. Florida to Utah, not super competitive in the second half of that football game. South Carolina to North Carolina, not crazy competitive in that game. But it's not even so much about the losses. Let's look at some of the wins. Kentucky, they trailed Eastern Kentucky for most of the first half before rallying and finally pulling away there in the second half. Arkansas, they trailed Kent State, who has never beaten an SEC opponent late in the second quarter before rallying and putting four touchdowns on the board and winning the game 28-6. Tennessee didn't take its first lead against Austin P until 15 seconds in the first half, 15 seconds remaining in the first half. Now, they won 30-13, to but this is 
their closest game in all 14 meetings against FCS opponents. They've never played an FCS opponent closer than they played in this past week. Missouri had to withstand a late rally from Middle Tennessee. Auburn. Auburn goes on the road to Cal. Didn't look great in the process. Cal's kicker misses three kicks. I mean, it, like, it was not pretty, even in the wins. So the SEC has got a lot to clean up here moving forward. Now, Georgia continues to cruise, but we don't know about them just yet. They continue to cruise. They look good. But all things considered, collectively, Ole Miss had a good win against Tulane. Thought it was a really good win, but it was really close until obviously that late fumble returned to the house, kind of broke it open, made the score look a little bit better. And that was without Tulane starting quarterback, Michael Pratt. So the SEC, I think right now, not at all what they've been in the past, but doesn't mean that can't flip pretty quickly with a couple of nice performances here as they move forward into late September and then into October and November. Number 10. The Pac-12 currently is the class of college football. Now, people are going to say, wait on a second. Really? Come on. Okay, well, eight teams right now out of 14 are ranked in the top... Or out of 12, excuse me, are ranked in the top 25. That's the most in the history of the AP poll, okay, for the Pac-12. And the previous high they'd ever had was six teams, and they'd obviously achieved that multiple times. And you think about some of the teams that we're kind of considering right now. USC, number one, in offensive efficiency. Washington, number two, in offensive efficiency. Obviously, they blew out Boise. They blew out Tulsa by a combined score 99 to 29. Okay? They are ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, Oregon, number three in offensive efficiency. They go on the road, one of the more difficult non-conference situations in the entire season, and find a way to get Texas Tech, even though it was one of the craziest bad beats I've ever seen in my life. We're talking about three teams that are really, really good. I've already talked what I think of Colorado. How about the fact that Utah is without their best pass-catching option in Brent Keithy, and they're without their starting quarterback, and yet they're still 2-0, even though the game against Baylor offensively certainly left something to be desired. UCLA, they decide to hand the reins to the true freshman Dante Moore, going up against a San Diego State team that in the last handful of years has been excellent defensively. Excellent defensively. Well, he only threw for 290 and three scores, and they balanced out what they were doing offensively with an outstanding rushing performance from TJ Harden and Carson Steele. UCLA is a handful, man. They are really good. How about Oregon State? They are legit. By the way, people are going to look at UC Davis. UC Davis, they ranked fourth in the FPS according to some metrics. Pretty good FCS football team. Well, 18 minutes into the game, they were up 28-0, Oregon State was, and pulled away for an easy 55-7 win, even in their losing efforts. I mean, Cal, maybe the ninth best team in the Pac-12, they almost beat Auburn, had they made some field goals, they would have. Arizona, maybe the 10th, 9th best team in the Pac-12. They go to Mississippi State, and they were this close to converting on fourth down that might have led to them ultimately winning the game. So even in their losing efforts, I've been thoroughly impressed with the Pac-12. It's the class of college football. It's the deepest league, and it continues to prove itself here heading into week three. Final thoughts here. Mel Tucker has been suspended right now from the Michigan State football team 
about 24 hours after it was revealed that he is the subject of a Michigan State Title IX investigation into allegations of sexual harassment. Now, they have a hearing scheduled here at the beginning of October. October 5th and 6th is when they're going to be getting together. Mel Tucker has been suspended without pay. So this will be a situation that we continue to monitor, but it already been reported by some outlets that he had been fired. It appears that though, as though this is the direction that it's heading, that he likely has coached his last game at Michigan State, but we won't necessarily jump to conclusions right now. We'll let the situation play itself out. But Michigan State, without their head coach, because sounds like he did one of the dumbest things you could possibly imagine a head coach doing. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. If you're here with the YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up button right below the video. We so appreciate all of you being here. Continue to check in. We'll be back on Wednesday with even more discussion as it relates to the sport that we love so incredibly much. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.